Kristen, there's a new movie out this week. Uh, the title is an acronym that I'd never heard, The Duff. That would be the Designated Ugly Fat Friend, which I think wasn't really the term we used back in our day when we were kids. I don't remember ever hearing that term when I was in high school. Did, did you have another term? Did you have a, any kind of similar term? No, but I remember there was a movie out a couple years ago called The Hottie and the Naughty. Sure, yeah. Um, and Which I never saw, but... Um, it was Paris Hilton, Paris wasn't it? Paris Hilton yeah. was in it, yes. Well, that explains why you never saw it. <laughs> but I mean, I don't remember... The, the Duff was... The, I mean, I feel like this might be a, a, a product of our uh, acronymized society. Everything's LOL and OMG. Because all the kids are so smart now, yeah. And, so, and, they, and also so they, can't, they can't say complete words that well, so they want to say Duff. <laughs> Hello, the old UFF. man, and I get know. off my lawn. I know. Stop like using acronyms. Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. I don't um, want you to YOLO all over my lawn. <laughs> I don't even know what that is either. Uh, so, The Duff, a uh, new teen film. Uh, but, you know, there aren't. I feel like there haven't been that many great teen films, that many interesting teen films in a long time. People almost don't make teen films anymore. Uh, I feel like at least once a year we have a teen movie that yeah. we love. There was that Aubrey Plaza one last year where she loses her virginity that I liked and you did not like you so liked, much. You liked that. I really liked that one. We loved Easy A a couple years ago. Easy A was great. Yeah, I mean, I think that at least one really good teen movie comes out every year. Well, we'll see if the Duff stands up. I did not like To Do List, as you know. The To Do List is the Aubrey Plaza one yeah, I just mentioned. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll see about the Duff. We're also going to talk about, of course, Hot Tub Time Machine two, and. Yet another Kevin Costner sports movie. With race involved. With race involved. Yes. yes. McFarland USA. We'll talk about all three of those. Plus, we'll also give you some extra action-packed Oscar content. We've got uh, interviews with uh, many, many Oscar nominees that we've yes. interviewed over the past year. We're going to play you uh, some samples of those. And what else do we got going on, Kristen? As usual, trivia. Hello. How could I forget? We never would miss trivia. All that and more in a minute. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And this is Movie Date. Kristen, why don't we start with Hot Tub Time Machine 2? You know, I love a hot tub, and I love a time machine. Who doesn't? And when the first Hot Tub Time Machine came out, you and I were so, well, maybe I'm lying. Maybe I was super excited about it, because I thought the title was hilarious. You were excited. I was super excited about it, and as you know, I also really loved Snakes on a Plane, and I just thought... (laughs) Let's have all movie titles be literal for a while. And Right. Yes. And and it really is. The title does not lie. No. It's a hot tub time machine. That's right. We've got Craig Robinson, John Cusack, Rob Corddry, Clark Duke. They're the misfit crew that jumped into the hot tub time machine. They traveled back into the 80s, learned a few things, decided to make a few changes to their lives, came back in the future, and now we are facing all of them again. But not John Cusack. No, no. There's just a little bit of a snippet of him in this. Little hiccup of John Cusack there. Uh, yeah, a photo and one little tiny bit of maybe some footage. Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, oh, he's off doing other things now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so the the three are still in the new sequel, Hot Tub Time Machine 2. They're going to travel to the future, actually. They're trying to chase down an assassin. Here's a clip. This is different. It's like a... Scandinavian gay bar. 
Looks like a Miami Ikea. Dude, it looks amazing. I mean, look how classy it is. It's like a museum. <gasps> Who's this? I think it's Jacob. <gasps> Why am I bald? What did you do? So here they are, accidentally in the future. Yep. Clark Duke, who, um, you know, he's the poor kid who just isn't given any respect by his dad, Rob Corddry, or yep. by Craig Robinson, or any of these grown-up friends of his dad's. And in this movie, in that scene, we're seeing, oh, maybe he gets his comeuppance. Maybe in the future things are going pretty well for him. Exactly. And, you know, that's just one little element of what's happening in the future. And mind you, they didn't mean to go into the future. That was because, a mistake. Yes, they meant to go into the past, but crazy things happen when you're in a hot tub time machine and drinking, you know, huge amounts of booze. Yeah. Like bla- you have to be blackout drunk for it to work. That's right. And and that's um, explained once again very vaguely by Chevy Chase as the hot tub time machine repairman who magically appears and disappears. So uh, as I recall, you liked the first one quite a bit. I thought it was completely idiotic, but enjoyable. Yeah, I, and I thought pretty much the same thing. Um, idiotic, I, but enjoyable. Idiotic, but enjoyable. And what I remember of it was liking the movie's, uh, this might be an overstatement, it, the emotionally driven core of the film. <laughs> In which you have these adults who are going back, they get a second shot at youth, and they're going to try to do some things right and, and you know, relive their past and, and correct some mistakes. And, of course, you know, me being an adult who lived through the 1980s, that resonated with me. Um, so what did you think, first of all, about the new film? And tell me specifically, Kristen, did you miss John Cusack? Um, I I did miss John Cusack a little bit just because I felt that he was part of the original crew. Yeah. And also, I'm just going to say this right now, Rob Corddry, it was just a little bit too much Rob Corddry for me. Well, he has now pretty much become the star. Yeah. And there's just, and I felt that the balance was thrown off by not having John Cusack there because it became so Rob Corddry all the time. Right. and, And he's deliberately not an enjoyable character. He's right. supposed to be the most irritating, egotistical, hot mess, and not necessarily likable. And that means that sometimes I just felt like, oh, enough of you, Rob Corddry. Enough Lou. Yes, enough of you, Lou. <laughs> okay, all right. So second question. I, I agree with you. My second question. They replace uh, John Cusack's character, Adam, with uh, his Adam son. Scott. Adam Yeah, Adam, named Adam Jr., played by Adam Scott, which I thought was kind of confusing, frankly, especially when I was yes. trying to write my review. Yes. Um, and so now you've got Adam Scott from uh, Parks and Rec, right? Yes. Uh, and many other things. Uh, so now he is kind of taking over the John Cusack role. Could you just explain to me what his character is supposed to be? You know what, Rayford? This is a trick question. It's I can a trick tell by the look on your face question. because there is no right answer. I'm smirking. <laughs> Now yeah, he's kind. Of, is he Ed Helms in The Hangover? Is he? Is he like who? Like, who is, is he? Is he John Cusack? Is he right? What is, is he? Who what is he? Who is that? Why does he go to a, a, a sort of fashionable Miami style nightclub and ask for a piece of fruit at the bar? I just I, the whole time I kept thinking, is that a type of person? Is that is that a is that a character I'm supposed to recognize? I couldn't the, understand. Is he supposed to be pee whipped because he kept keeps checking in with his wife to be and then he, oh sorry I didn't get that oh sorry oh my <laughs> now, gosh now I really now I'm making I got references yes. from the oh, henpecked let's say oh sorry um, okay I understand what you're yeah. saying yeah right was he, right is he the henpecked groom to be is he who, the one guy who can't be a full on dude because he likes his lady too much and respects right, her right exactly yeah. right I, un, very unclear 
Um, I found him intensely irritating as a character. I thought he was. I thought he threw the entire what little chemistry there was between the other guys that was left. I thought he destroyed it in every scene. I thought that was sad, and. I will just say, if you can't tell, I thought this movie was just awful. I thought it was just horrible, cynical, empty, and depressing. What did mm, you think? I thought so, too. And I also just thought there was so much going on. But, out, I mean, at the same time, there's so much going on, there's no story. And yet there's nothing possible, going on, there's, right? There's yes. nothing happening. And as you said, no emotional core. No emotional it's core whatsoever. Like, here are guys behaving badly. Here's something else they're doing that's really bad. Here's wanna, something else that's kind of Do you want to take some drugs? I yeah. sure do. Whoa! It's, a, it's the drug scene. And, and there's no charm. No, the no charm. The first movie actually had charm, and it was a little bit self-effacing. It was self-aware, but not right. in a way that was too winky. Right. Had a little bit of a heart. This one's just like... What is going on? No, absolutely nothing. I could not. I, 93 minutes, I could not wait for it to end. <laughs> I could not wait for it to end, and it took forever. I thought it was awful. And I think fans of the original Hot Tub Time Machine, that thing, that thing had its following. I think people are going to be pretty disappointed by Hot Tub Time Machine 2. I, I, I thought it was not just a letdown. I thought it was a lousy, lousy date. Mm, I, I hate to say it, but I agree with you. I went in with... A lot of hope for this. I, I actually went in with hope, but no, hot tub time machine too. Hot mess time machine too. <laughs> bad date. Oh, no, Very you bad did. date. Yes, I Kristen. did. Oh, yes, I did. All right, let's see if uh, Kevin Costner can lift our spirits in McFarland, USA. As as you were saying, uh, this is the second film in a row to star Kevin Costner in a supporting cast of ethnic minorities. Uh, we just talked about Black or White, in which he played a lawyer who was accused of racism by a bunch of black people who turned out to be just totally wrong. Um, and so I had some concerns going into McFarland. He plays Jim White. Uh, a real... Oh, no, his name is Jim his White. His name is Jim White, oh, Kristen. No, his name is Jim not. White. But don't blame the screenwriters. This is a true story okay. set in the late 80s, 1987 to be exact. He's a new coach at a predominantly poor Latino high school in McFarland, USA. He doesn't want to be there, but he's made some bad decisions in the past. He's This is pretty much the only place he's, got, he's going to be able to find a job. He gets the idea that maybe he could uh, teach these kids a little something by uh, taking them off of their football team, which is a complete joke, and turning them into runners. McFarland has never had a cross-country track team, um, but he thinks that these kids have what it takes. Here's a clip. Every team that's here deserves to be, including you. But they haven't got what you got. Right? They don't get up at dawn like you and go to work in the fields, right? They don't go to school all day and then go back to those same fields. That's what you do. And then you come out with me and you run eight miles, ten miles, and you take on you take on even more pain. These kids don't do what you do. They can't even imagine it. Now, this is a kind of film that seems to come up again and again. We look at it and we laugh and we say, oh, look, a white person going in to rescue minorities. The, or blind, a white person, the blind side. A white person going in to teach you the violin. Or right. a white person who's going to teach you that if your choral group works together, you can win the choral contest. Right. You can do anything because you're right. minorities and I'm teaching you math. You are a white person coming to save the day. And right. we make fun of this movie all the time. And yet, even though we make fun of it, we keep seeing it remade. Over and over and over again. And that is correct. Please tell me that this is better than all the others because it's actually directed by a director I like, Nikki Caro, who did Whale Rider. Whale Rider, mm-hmm. which I love Whale Rider. And she also did North Country, which was oh, yeah. about women unionizing, rising up in Minnesota. And I just, 
I, I like to think that she has the potential to do the sorry, tired old story <laughs> some justice. Does she? Tell me, Rafer, does she do this some justice? She does. <gasps> You're I, kidding. I actually thought this was a pretty good, solid film, it, it, despite the fact that you have seen this a million times before. And in fact, pretty recently uh, in, in Million Dollar Arm and, you know, The Blind Side, uh, 23 Blast, When the Game Stands Call, you know, Coach Carter. I mean, these. you can list a long, long list. I guess Coach Carter's going back away. Not fair. But um, so even if I even if you have, I think, some sports fatigue and maybe some uh, suspicions about, you know, residual colonialism that might play up <laughs> in this film. Um, it's pretty good, and I think here's why. The movie takes at least a little more than a passing interest in the Latino characters, in the kids. Um, oh, it's not just focused on the white man and how he's right. really the one being saved. Like like in Million Dollar Arm, a film that mm. I thought was really offensive. Um, unintentionally so, but but so. And this one does a lot better. Um, the kids have a real self-awareness that the Indian kids in Million Dollar Arm did not have. They're very aware of what the rest of the world thinks of them and what their place in life, what their parents expect of them, which is nothing essentially but to follow them right into the fields and keep you know, picking fruit and uh, being a farm worker. Um, and you feel all that kind of coming down in their heads and you feel for them. It's a good cast, mostly unknowns, at least a couple of whom are from McFarland and have never acted before as the athletes. Costner, oh, I think, is great. Costner's really good. And there's a really nice, small but important scene in the film where Kevin Costner decides, all right, if you guys are so hell-bent on picking in the fields like your parents keep telling you to, I'm going to come along with you and work alongside you in the fields. And it nearly kills him. And it's a really short scene where you kind of step into his shoes as he's stepping into their shoes and you really feel it. You feel what those kids are doing and you feel what their lives are going to look like in 10 years. And I think that little scene alone really boosts this movie beyond the normal sort of inspirational feel-good drama. Oh, good. And so, you know, a lot of pat moments, a lot of cross-cultural, you know, let's bring the tamales over to the white people's house. <laughs> of course, you're going to get that in this film, a little throwaway romance, but that's okay. I still thought it was a pretty solid date. I thought McFarland USA was far better than I expected. Wow, that's great. So I might have to go see that. All right, Kristen, tell us all about the Duff. I'm too old to explain this, Kristen. I'm too old. I don't get it. <laughs> the designated ugly fat friend, which, full disclosure, I think I actually was in high school and a little bit of college. I find that very hard to believe. No, no, but I really think I was. I think I was the gatekeeper to these pretty girlfriends that I had. And guys would frequently talk to me in the most buddy way as if I was another dude. Like, hey, <laughs> What's up? Where, where, where's so and so and so and so? What are they up to right now? Yeah, yeah. really? Yeah, that actually did happen more than once when I was in high school. Who were who were these girls? Were they, Iman. <laughs> I'd say you're a very attractive woman, Kristen. You're I find so it nice. Very hard to believe. You're so nice. That's why we're co-hosts of this podcast <laughs> because you look past everything and just see me as a nice, pretty woman. That's why. Yes, but they saw me as a nice, approachable equivalent to a male. So and so you say <laughs> so you say you know the feeling. I know that feeling. But I think what this movie is saying 
in its explanation, when we first find out that our main character, Bianca, when we find out that she is the designated ugly fat friend, her next door neighbor since childhood, who's this very popular jock, and they're friendly with each other, despite the fact that they run in different circles on the high school campus. Uh, we find out from him, the way he explains it is, it, it's all relative. It's not a bad thing. You're not really, you know, ugly mean, and fat. Yeah, it just mean, means... Right, just a word. You're just not the most hot amongst your friends. Whether <laughs> right. it's the teachers, whether it's the computer nerds, even the football players have the duffs amongst them who are hot, but maybe not as hot as their buddies. That's what he is saying to Bianca. But Bianca, she doesn't like hearing any of this, and she goes back to her two best friends who really do look like they could be in, like, Seventeen magazine. Boy, or just best ever. friends. And... She decides she needs to really tell them how she feels about this. Here's a clip. How could you guys not tell me this whole time that I was your duff? Or what? Your designated ugly fat friend? Yeah. Wesley told me everything. Since when do you care what Wesley Rush says? Because it makes sense. I mean, why else would two super hot, popular girls want to be friends with somebody like me, okay? It's because you're using me to make yourselves look better. Just because you think one of us is better looking than... No, no, no. I'm glad you said that, because it makes what I'm about to do a whole lot easier. Go ahead and check them. Did you just unfriend me? Horrors. Ugh. Gotta unfriend them. Unfriended. Unfriended. She is unfriended, her very hot friends. And then after unfriending them, she goes back to her next-door neighbor, her football player buddy, and says, I need you to help me. I don't want to be a duff anymore. I want to be a dateable girl. I want to be somebody who people approach to ask me out, not to ask me how to ask my friends out. Exactly. And there's one boy in particular she's got her eye on. He's kind of got fluffy hair. He plays the guitar. Yeah. Devil may care. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of skater, skater, musician, dreamy artist type. Yes, that type. That type. And and we should note, Bianca, uh, she's not ugly or fat, but she does wear like overalls. She wears kind of... Messy. Oh, the overalls are the improvement. That's, that's, <laughs> that's actually when she's gone on the, on the makeover shopping spree, where she mostly shows up wearing pajama bottoms and a hoodie. Yes, and, you know, oversized T-shirts. Right. And she doesn't style her hair, and she doesn't wear a lot of makeup. And, you know, we all know this person. Yeah. It doesn't mean she's ugly. She's just not polished in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you think, Kristen? One of the things I loved about this movie was the fact that she was so happy and confident before finding any of this out. She wasn't the awkward kid who always felt self-conscious and unhappy about being awkward. Right. And I think that alone subverts it and makes it a different kind of teen movie than other teen movies out there. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's like other teen movies in that, you know, Can't Buy Me Love or She's All That. Mm-hmm. You know, There's this kind of makeover thing. There's a popular kid versus a nerd and then working together to try and help each other. Some of these are old tropes in teen movies that we've seen before. And, you know, I think it's even paying homage to a lot of older movies like The Breakfast Club and oh, so on, the way the movie's introduced. It opens up with The Breakfast Club quote, yes, basically. Yes, exactly. So, and I like that it's paying homage to those other movies, and it's hitting all those same buttons that you want pushed when you yes. watch a teen movie, and yet when you push those buttons, it kind of subverts things, and what comes out after you push the buttons, smarter than I would have expected, uh-huh. and a, a little different than you'd expect ever, and, and I thought that was great. I thought yeah. the messages this movie, you know... I I hate to say that because I don't want people to think, oh, it's a message movie. But I feel that it's sending messages that are good messages for kids to hear. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, 
I was a little, uh, you know, the first the first thing I heard in the movie, as I said, was the was a little a little reference to the Breakfast Club, and I kind of thought, well, all right. So I know that I know this film has seen other teen films now, and I know that it's sort of it's going to aim high. Um, and I thought it just completely struck gold. I just I thought this movie was so fun and so funny and so smart. And I think the, I, for a couple reasons, you know, it's based on a novel. Um, yes, by, written by a teen herself when she wrote it. Seventeen. She was seventeen yes. when she wrote it. She's like twenty-three now. Um, Cody Keplinger. Um, and I haven't read the novel, but while I was watching the film, I just kept thinking. This all seems so true. I mean, my high school is very long ago, and and many things have changed, and kids are different now. But it all just struck me as so true and so authentic. The way the kids were interacting, they're um, they're much more they're they're more sophisticated in many ways, but not at the same time. They're um, they're kind of confident and natural in a way that I think kids are today because kids do feel so much more empowered and so much more part of the world. And yet also they can be very awkward with with each other. And I have to just say the two stars, Mae Whitman from Parenthood and Robbie Amell, who I think is from The Flash. Yes, he's from The Flash. Um, He's playing the football player next door neighbor and Mae Whitman is playing Bianca or Duff. The two of them I just thought were fantastic together. Uh, she is just so charming, so funny, and he, I think, has got this tricky role, right? He's supposed to be the hunky, shallow football stupid team, jock. stupid yeah. jock, right? And yet, we're supposed to believe that he has some hidden depth and some hidden sensitivity, and that she wouldn't just be knocked out by him and this ridiculously great body that he's had, that he, that he has. Um, but. I think he he pulls it off. He somehow pulls it off. He you 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 believe that he is kind of hiding something, that he's hiding a kind of sensitivity underneath all that. And yet he's also completely aware that he's completely handsome and charming. And that, that's not easy to pull off. And I thought he did a great job. Oh, I thought so too. He was totally likable. He and, really was. And it never felt that he was underhanded or anything mm-hmm. in how he was dealing with this childhood friend and next door neighbor. And he actually saw her for a lot of her good qualities. Exactly. In a way that people wouldn't give him credit for. Exactly. People would think, oh, he's a dumb football player. He couldn't actually see all the good things in his dumpy next door neighbor. Even though he's the one that that breaks the news to her in the first place, that she's she's the duff. Um, You know, great support cast, Ken Jeong, Allison Janney. um, You know, um, I think all the other actors are pretty good. Uh, I just just was like, literally, I was over the moon for this movie, which I, I liked it so much that it made me feel that I was maybe like, that I, I thought, maybe because I like it, all the teens won't. Oh, <laughs> like, no. I was like, but the I'm, screening I I'm went so to, the old teens... that, you know what I mean? Like, like, do I like this because it reminds me of my old teen movies? <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, the screening I went to, the we didn't go together. We went to separate screenings of this one. But the one I went to, it was filled with teens who just went wild. Mine too. Mine they too. They liked it. They loved it. They were, you know, they were taking selfies of themselves afterwards saying, I am at the Duff screening and this is incredible. And I talked with some of the kids around me. They loved it. Oh, good. And, and I loved it. I just, good. I thought this was such a great date. And I don't think you have to be a teen to love it. I don't either. I don't think you have to be a teen. And I don't think you have to be a girl. I think, yeah. I think there's, I think there's enough, enough other things in that movie that will resonate with you. It's not just, you know, it's not just girls and their friends and dresses. It's, I, I think that movie has got a lot to offer. I just loved it. Yay for the Duff. Yay great for the date. Duff. Great, right. great, great date. Excellent. Well, stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to have snippets of conversations we've had over the past year with directors and writers 
of three of the Oscar-nominated films. Maybe, who knows, maybe this weekend one of these films will take home a statue. That's coming up. Stay with us. I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And a reminder to listeners, you can always visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast, to tell us how you feel, to take a listen to how we feel. We, we log on there several times a week and have little tidbits we put on there. And we were just having a great thread on the best teen movies. And a lot of you guys have been weighing in with your thoughts on what the best teen movies are. For example... Michael McLaughlin said that he really loves Juno. Allie Ferguson has Drive Me Crazy, which admittedly I've never seen. That's a new one to me. Bring It On and Saved. I love Bring It On and Saved. Kevin says, does Stand By Me count? We have a lot of people weighing in. I don't think it does. I don't think it does, Kevin. What? You don't think so? High school movie? Teen movie? I don't know. Teen Mm, movie. Mm. Preteen, I think. Okay, well, we'll have to go and take a look back at that. All right. But yeah, definitely, folks, visit us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. Now, Let's revisit some of the great conversations we had over the past year with some of the Oscar-nominated directors. Remind us about Whiplash, Rafer. So this was a movie that came out of Sundance, uh, written and directed by Damien Chazelle. He was uh, 29. I think he may still even be 29. He's extremely young. Young kid. It's his second film, and it's based on his own experiences as a high school jazz musician. The film stars Miles Teller as a college-age jazz musician, drummer, who's trying to be one of the greats. Uh, His teacher, Terrence Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons, who is up for Best Supporting Actor and will almost indubitably, certainly, will most likely get it. Um, He plays Terrence Fletcher, this teacher who is an abusive, sadistic, ruthless mentor. Um, Great film. You and I both just went crazy for this movie. And we got a chance to interview Damien Chazelle. And he started off just by explaining to us how much of this movie is actually based on his real-life experiences. I was a jazz drummer myself in a pressure cooker kind of jazz orchestra. In my case, it was in high school, uh, so it was a little different. But it was, you know, a, a program that was treated very much like a college or professional program and sort of would travel around the world and play competitions, and the conductor inspired a lot of fear. So I wanted to kind of, you know, create a character who was a little bit in, in that sort of mold, but also, you know, particularly explore this weird sort of relationship between mentor mentee and and uh, and conductor and musician um and it winds up really focusing and really kind of distilling into the need to find approval from one single individual and what that kind of does to your psyche i think that's such a fascinating relationship because the student is such a perfectionist and needing approval so badly and you realize at a certain point in the film he wouldn't be abused if he didn't need his tormentor so badly, which is complicated because you don't want an abusive victim to ever be complicit in the abuse. How how did you walk that line in depicting this relationship? Because you don't want want it to be a story of it's his fault. Right. I mean, I think it's... uh... I think at the the end of the day, the the character that J.K. Simmons plays, Fletcher, sees immediately what he can prey on. So he sees at once someone who's the perfect victim to his methods, but also ultimately the perfect, you know, victor, um, someone who actually will sort of carry it through to the end. 
Um, so I see it as, as you know, even though the entire movie is told from the point of view of Andrew, um, the, the structure of the movie is really like one long lesson that Fletcher has, you know, created for him. There's a, a lot of great details in this movie, and one of the ones that I like is a poster in Andrew, Miles Teller's character's dorm room. He's got a little picture. I think it's of Buddy Rich, his hero. Uh, And the quote, I may get it wrong, but the quote is, if you don't practice, you end up in a rock band. And (laughs) I love that quote because I think it says a lot about Andrew, the character, about his thoughts, what he wants, and also I think sort of the way he must be kind of disconnected from a lot of his generation. You know, most most teenagers want to be in a rock band. Um, Yes. Was that you? Were you were you like him? Uh, did you want to be one of the greats? Were you afraid of ending up in a rock band? <laughs> no, I would have loved to be in a rock band. I was in rock bands with friends. I, um, but at the same time, Buddy Rich was always this sort of idol who loomed down on me. And and part of what makes Buddy Rich what gives him such a mystique as a as a figure in jazz history is not just how great a player he was, but how tough he was uh, off the drum kit. Super, super tough uh, to his players. There's recordings online you can hear of him uh, verbally just going after his players. And uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff that you know I wrote for Fletcher, uh, very much in the same mold. Another detail that I think anybody watching this movie might be shocked by is how much a body physically goes through while training that hard to be a musician. How many of these details are exaggerated and how many are real? And I'm specifically talking about you're bleeding on your drums. <laughs> Depends on how thick your skin is, literally. Uh, you know, blisters immediately start happening. And if you have weak skin, your blisters bleed and then your blisters tear. And um, so I remember having to work through the pain. My hands were always just in stinging, stinging pain um, while playing. And I put on screen what I went through. So there's not a drop of blood on the uh, uh, in the film, by which I mean the, the, the blood that you know, rises from drumming. Uh, not from other stuff, um, that, that is not, uh, th- that, that I didn't, you know, experience myself. Well, Damien Chazelle, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. Damien Chazelle is the writer and director of the new film, Whiplash. Now, The Theory of Everything follows the story not just of the great physicist Stephen Hawking, but of his wife, Jane Wilde, who he married back when he was in university. And she got together with him, and very early on, he was diagnosed with motor neuron disorder, and how that marriage played out, the challenges of that, all of that is profiled in this movie, and I was lucky enough, unfortunately you weren't there, Rafer, but I was lucky enough to sit down with James Marsh, the director of The Theory of Everything, and to talk to him about this and about why he chose to focus on this portrait of a marriage rather than just a person, and why he chose to do this in a feature film form rather than documentary because he's best known for doing documentaries including Man on Wire, another Oscar-nominated and actually Oscar-winning film that came out a few years ago. And this is what he told me. One of the reasons I wanted to make the film was it wasn't a biography of Stephen Hawking and didn't attempt to be. It was a portrait of a relationship um, and, a, and a marriage. And that was, for me, much more interesting territory than a conventional you know, cradle to where he is now uh, biography. Um, and I felt that actually, as a documentary filmmaker by background, in fact, a screenplay, a dramatic film, was a good way of exploring that part of his life in a way that you couldn't really with a documentary because you wouldn't have been there to document that marriage. And also, I, I, I was very 
uh, intrigued by Jane Wilde, who became Jane Hawkin, and the fact that the screenplay and the story we were telling gave her an equal voice in the film. And that felt to me to be the most important aspect of it, in a way, to have a perspective from the person who cared for him and enabled many aspects of his life to continue as, as they did. Now, Jane Wilde, this is actually inspired by her memoir, is that right? That's correct. Her, her, this film was inspired by her second memoir, which was written quite a bit after they separated and, and divorced and had, a, 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 I guess, a more generous perspective on the, on the relationship. And I, I met with Jane um, several times before we made the film and went on a very interesting uh, tour around Cambridge with her where she was able to point out all the many impediments that she would encounter with Stephen and three children and how difficult it was at that time to get around Cambridge. And she almost single-handedly made Cambridge a friendly place for disabled people. She seems in this movie like an incredible woman. And Stephen Hawking also seems like an incredible human, but not perfect. He seemed to display all the vast types of emotions and contradictions that we as humans display when we're in relationships. Indeed, and the relationship ends in failure, essentially. There's much to celebrate and, and in, enjoy about their steadfastness together. But like so many other relationships, it doesn't endure. In fact, all of our relationships don't really endure, I guess, when you come to think about it. They either end in a, you know, a failure of people or mortality, if you like. So, yes, it is, it's trying to be a truthful portrait of that relationship, and so, yes, it, it does try and show you an accurate portrait. And, and both Jane and Stephen separately have said that they find it to be broadly true. And Stephen, he actually played a role in this movie, which we don't necessarily see, but we hear. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, we, we met with Stephen before the film went into production and got his approval for the screenplay. I'm not sure he was wild about the idea, um, given the provenance of the story, which was his ex-wife's uh, memoir. Mm -hmm. but, but he was able to understand that it was a dramatic film and was taking his story and telling it in very broad strokes. Um, he came to the film set when we were working on the film in Cambridge and I think enjoyed the scale of what we were doing. We, we, he came when the May Ball scene in the film um, was being staged. And then towards the end of the production... We had to show him the film, and that was a, obviously a very nerve-wracking occasion. Um, as a filmmaker, you're used to showing the film to producers, and you expect sometimes to get, you know, have a tough time. But th this was altogether a different experience, um, and also it takes him quite a while to communicate. So after the screening was over, we had to wait quite a while, given the nature of how he communicates with his voice, to understand what he made of it. But his proclamation was that he found it to be broadly true, and then volunteered his actual voice for us to use in the film. So he became almost a character in the film at that point. He was already, of course, in a fictional, dramatic way. Um, but the voice made a big difference to the way the film worked for me personally, and it changed the film in a very mysterious way. Um, so the voice you hear in the film is, in fact, Stephen's voice. And that felt like a, an endorsement to the film, too, that he was able to offer that to us. James Marsh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That's James Marsh, the director of The Theory of Everything, nominated for Best Picture, but also Best Actor for Eddie Redmayne. And I think Eddie Redmayne's going to bring this home. Absolute show in for Eddie yes, Redmayne. Yes, absolutely. And the great Felicity Jones, who plays Jane Wilde, is also nominated for Best Actress. And um, we don't think she's going to get it, but she was really just fantastic. No, it's nice to see her on the list, yeah, I think. Yeah, it is. She, she was just fantastic. Now, 
the third nominee for Best Picture we're going to talk about now is The Imitation Game. We, again, were lucky enough to sit down with the director of this film as well as the writer of the film. And their names are Morton Tilden, he's the director, and the writer Graham Moore. For those of you who don't know, The Imitation Game is about uh, Alan Turing, the mathematician cryptographer during World War II, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, He helped uh, shorten the war considerably, got much credit for doing that by Winston Churchill, by all accounts a hero. And then several years later, when it was discovered that he was gay, he was prosecuted for that and actually chemically castrated. So it's a a really compelling story, uh, not widely known. And The Imitation Game is also up for Best Picture, Benedict Cumberbatch up for Best Actor, and uh, Morton Tilden up for Best Director, Graham Moore up for Best Adapted Screenplay. The film's got eight nominations in all. And we asked the writer, Graham Moore, how he stumbled across the story of Alan Turing in the first place. I was this tremendous kind of computer nerd growing up. I went to space camp. All right. I went awesome. to computer programming camp. And, you know, among techie kids, Turing is this sort of tremendous inspiration, the sort of outsider's outsider, this guy who never fit in but was able to sort of see the world in a way that no one else had. And he was always, you know, as I got older and turned out to be a very, very, very bad computer programmer. Um, so I went and became a writer. Um, but after I became a writer, it was always like, how come no one has told Alan Turing's story on screen? It's this amazing true story that not a lot of people know. It felt like the sort of secret history of World War II, a secret history of computer science um, that had sort of been written out of a lot of kind of popularized narratives of both the war and of the development of computers. But it always seemed like it really deserved um, a proper sort of cinematic treatment. You know, the, the Imitation Game is one of uh, several biopics coming out right now, uh, and of course, all biopics usually get the uh, get the, the accuracy scrutiny treatment from the press, um, and you guys have gotten some of that. Mm-hmm. You know, fact checking with historical films is always a little bit. I think it's in some sense a misunderstanding of of how art works. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at Monet's Water Lilies, they don't actually look like water lilies they look like how it feels to look at water lilies. And the, the goal mm-hmm. of a film like this is to recreate the experience, to bring the audience into the mind of Alan Turing, while at the same time telling his story, you know, fairly and accurately and truthfully. All, all the major things are true. And, it, and but as, as Graham says, what, what, what you have to do is sort of capture the spirit of Alan Turing. But one of the things that some folks out there have criticized is that in capturing the spirit of Alan Turing, he wasn't depicted as, quote, gay enough in the film. And I'm sure you guys have heard about this, that some folks out there think that there should have been depictions of him actually with men in romantic ways in his adult life. And is that something that you considered when you were making the film? We had you just discussion about this. I mean, I mean, the core of this film is an unfulfilled gay love. That is the core of it. And I think you actually would do great injustice to, to the character. You're saying because he's a gay man, you need to have random sex scene. I mean, if we're treating this character like we would treat him if he was a heterosexual character. You would uh, show what the narrative needs, what the, what the story needs. I mean, first of all, it's also he described Bletchley as a sexual desert. It's also why he had, that's his own word and uh, uh-huh. how, how he described it. I think that Alan Turing is is gay in every single frame of the imitation game. Um, we just don't see him having sex, um, but that doesn't make him not gay. Like he's, he's, I think that's a reductive view of homosexuality and a reductive view of, of sexuality in general, that it's only about the act of sex. 
where were you guys in your filming process, or if you were done, where were you when you heard the news that he had been posthumously pardoned by the Queen? It was like a month after we wrapped. I mean, which is great. I mean, in, it's great that he gets the attention to Alan Turing, uh, but in many ways, there's nothing to pardon him for. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, he never did anything wrong. It's the law, uh, you know, he was in some gross indecency. Yeah, uh, in the fifties, and just that was just for being a gay man, and that this law existed up until the mid sixties in the UK. So I mean, it's fifty thousand gay men was was uh, prosecuted by the same law, and and uh, is that right? Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. They wow. should all been pardoned. I mean, it is, and there's nothing to pardon them for. Uh, and and uh, I mean, I got this lovely email from uh, a man who says, "I'm a ninety-two year old man. I was." You know, prosecuted from the same law as Alan Turing for, for gross indecency, and you know, I watch a movie in tears, and and it's and it's I'm I'm just thinking that it that it shines a little light on 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 that great injustice that happened to so many men. Morton Tilden is the director of the imitation game. Graham Moore is the writer. The film is nominated for Best Picture, and both of them are nominated for Oscars as well. Well, Kristen, shall we close out? With trivia. As we always do, and as we always must, we have to say goodbye. But yes, trivia makes the parting a little bit sweeter. It sure does. So last week, we were talking about a certain movie. What is it? 38 Tones of Black? That's right. That's I, right. I, I Half Tones. Uh, I forgot what it's called. The Overtone Something Series. Charcoal? <laughs> I, I can't remember. Whatever it is. We were talking about some movie, and it supposedly had some BDSM in it. And so we played a clip of another movie that had some BDSM in it, and here's that clip. Rebecca, when you first met Andrew, how did you know that he he was like you? I was at a party and there was a huge crowd of people, but we just saw each other and we knew. Just like that? We asked you to identify what that movie is, and we got a lot of right answers. Here's one that we randomly selected from the pool. My name is Giacomo Santangelo. I just listened to uh, Fifty Shades of Grey podcast from this past weekend, and the answer to your trivia question is Body of Evidence, the craptacular film with Madonna and Willem Dafoe, but more importantly, Frank Langella. Anyway, I, uh, that made me laugh. That took me back quite some time. I don't know if I would call it a BDSM film. I would call it a really, really bad movie. Excellent, Giacomo. Wow, great work. And very, not... very Italian name. That, yes. you, that's, that's, like, that's like from Italy. We that love name. that name. Yeah. yeah, we want to hang out with you and do Italian things, whatever that means. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what that means, Kristen. I'm going to leave that one alone. Um, all right. So for this week, we've been talking about the Duff and teen films. And all the great teen films that have been out there, uh, we decided to pick a teen film that we personally don't think is really that great. So, <laughs> Well, I might think it's a little bit great. Oh, Kristen. I might, right. I might think it's a little bit There's great. There's your first clue. But I'm going to say that most of our listeners are not going to think this is great. And I'm willing to bet on our Facebook thread right now that's happening with the best teen movies, <laughs> none of them are going to mention this movie. <laughs> it's going to explode, that thread. It's going to blow up. All right. Here's a clip. Everybody, I have something to tell you. I'm not Sebastian. I'm Viola. Wait, wait. You're not Viola. Yes, I am. No, I know Viola. I I kissed Viola. 
You kissed me. What? What are you talking about? I didn't. I didn't kiss you. The girls' team at Cornwall got cut, and the guys wouldn't let me go out for their team. So, I've been pretending to be my brother while he was in London for the past two weeks. So I could make the team and beat Cornwall. My brother came home early, and that's who you saw kissing Olivia, and that's who played the first half. Great, ah. great stuff. That's oh, great stuff, Kristen. Wow, what what an interesting teen movie that is. <laughs> Again, so many lessons to learn. <laughs> you'll laugh, you'll cry, yeah. you'll learn something. If you know the name of that teen film. Give us a call, 5717-MOVIES. And again, visit us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. A secret safe, a secret kept.